to uh, the Gospel of Mark again this morning. We're enjoying our, our time together as we have an opportunity to peer back into the life of our Savior. And today we want to think about what, what really, what truly makes a follower of Jesus. In the first two chapters of Mark, Jesus has attracted all sorts of people to him. Some just liked being around him. Some wanted to be healed, and that's why they hung around. Others, they were just there because they loved to watch him do miracles. And then there were the people that were trying to, to trap him. They were also there. They were also around him all the time. Those people that saw Jesus as a threat, and at this point they were looking for a way to, to trap him. Well, when we get to Mark 3, verse 7... When we get to that point, all these people are there together, and they're all there at one time. It says there in verse 7 that a great crowd followed. And these people, it says, are from every geographical area around, around the area of Palestine. And they're from all walks of life. Then verse 8 says, it says, when the crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Now those are key words to remember for what's about to happen here. The crowd followed because of what he was doing. They, it says they came to him from all over the place because they heard that he had been doing these amazing things. By this point, Jesus has, in our day, we would say that he's had sort of a rock star presence. People wanted to be part of what he was doing. They wanted to see it in person. They'd heard about it, and now they all want to see it. And we're all kind of like that, aren't we? If we know someone famous, if you know they're famous for something they do, then we want to see that person. It's not enough to just hear it. We want to be there. We want to be part of the action. For some of you younger people, when a guy like Justin Bieber comes to town, you want to be there to see what's so great about Justin Bieber. Now, I still don't know what it is, but some of you might need to enlighten me. But it doesn't matter how much it costs, it doesn't matter how far away from him you're sitting, you just want to be in the same room. Now, for most of us, it's probably not Justin Bieber. It might be the Prime Minister, or... I know in Calgary and Winnipeg, Arnold Schwarzenegger just came through town giving a speech. Former body lifter became governor. Or Sidney Crosby, it might be for some of you. Or Bill Gates. For some of us, it might even be, wait for it, a gospel quartet. Or it might be Billy Graham or John Piper. Well, that's what it was like for Jesus. He attracted a great crowd. He was just starting to make a, a name for himself around Palestine. But in this chapter, Jesus starts to make a distinction about who his true followers are and who his followers are not. And in the process, he starts to say that his true followers might not always be 
who we think they might be. Jesus especially challenges the notion that you can be a follower of Jesus just because of what he does. Now, what he does at the end is of ultimate importance for us. But these healing miracles that he's doing in his life were, we learned this a couple of weeks ago, we're pointing to that greater miracle that was to come where he raises people to new life. These crowds were focused on these physical miracles. But Jesus' focus is ultimately a spiritual focus, a spiritual healing that he's most interested in. Well, that begs the question for you and me. Now, these people came to Jesus because of what he was doing. So if you and I claim to be his follower, the question we need to answer is, why did we come to Jesus? Why did you come to Jesus? Was it because of what he could do for you on merely a horizontal level? I hear many people's testimonies start and end with how Jesus gave them a better life here on this earth. When I found Jesus, my marriage got better. My job became more fulfilling. When I found Jesus, I started obeying my parents and getting, being able to get along with them better. My fan, financial situation improved. I started to feel at peace with myself. Now, those are all legitimate byproducts of becoming a believer. But they miss the real point on so many levels. When we become followers of Jesus, it's not about you finding Jesus. We're soon going to find out it's about Jesus finding us. But it's about who Jesus is. And the fact that he has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That he has brought you from being spiritually dead to having been made alive with Christ. And so Jesus comes and talks about what is necessary in order to be a true follower of Jesus. Now in these accounts here in Mark 3, there's different opinions that are starting to form about who Jesus is. And people are outright say them here. In verse 21... Jesus is at home, and if you're not at Mark 3, please turn to there. It'll help you if you follow along. Um, in verse 21, Jesus there is at home, and he's with his own family, and, and the, his own family comes and has an opinion about who he is. They say, he is out of his mind. And so they try to seize him, it says. They want to rescue Jesus from himself. Maybe, maybe just get him home for a while so they can talk some sense into him. The scribes, on the other hand, have a different opinion about Jesus. Look at the very next verse, verse 22. They were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul and casts out demons through the power of the prince of demons. And we're going to find out that this is ultimately a, a fatal opinion. But the only ones that get it right about Jesus are the unclean spirits back in verse, back in verse 11. Look at that. It says, And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And yet to them, Jesus tells them not to make this known. He knows that they're not yet ready for him to be fully known as the Son of God. Well, from these different opinions, we start to find out that it's important that people know who Jesus is. It's important that we know who Jesus is. 
It's, it's eternally important that you know who Jesus is. You see, your knowledge of who Jesus is makes all the difference. Your opinion of who he is determines your destiny. Jesus came to this earth in an act of God's amazing love to save people from their sins. That's what we just celebrated around the table here. He appeared to redeem people from the curse that the law places on each of us because we are all unable to keep that law perfect, which is perfectly, which is God's requirement for all of us. He appeared to satisfy God's anger against sin by becoming sin for us. He came, we learned in Mark 1, saying, repent and believe in the gospel. In order to become a Christian, you need to know something about who Jesus is and who you are. So who then is a true follower of Jesus, according to Jesus? Well, the great crowd of people in verses 7 to 12 are not his true followers. And in the rest of Mark 3, Mark switches back and forth between who is and who isn't. But in the small print, in between the lines of these stories, we start to learn how Jesus thinks about his followers. And we start to learn a little bit about what Jesus is planning to accomplish through his followers. Who are the followers of Jesus then? We have already learned who they were not, part one. They're not the great crowd. Now we learn in the first part who are the followers of Jesus. In verses 13 to 19, out of that great crowd that were in the first few verses, we have Jesus appointing the 12 apostles. Literally, verse 14 says, he made 12. He made 12. Here it seems like Mark is intentionally pointing back to Genesis 1.1, where it says, in the beginning, finish it for me, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. He made 12. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word created is the same one that's used here in Mark 3.13, which most of your translations have as he appointed. It seems like Mark is deliberately comparing God creating out of nothing back in Genesis with how disciples are created. As God created the earth and filled the earth and created male and female to live in community, now Jesus is creating a new community. He's creating, in a way, the first church made up at the beginning of these 12 whom he named apostles. The point here is that God made this new community. The subject of this whole section is on what Jesus did. He called to him those whom he desired. Here it is. They didn't find Jesus. Jesus went up on a mountain Luke says he prayed, and then he made 12. Why 12? Well, in many ways, it's a continuation of the Old Testament, where the people of God were made up of whom? They were made up of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's also looking ahead to the church, which is, which is founded on the apostles and the prophets. But Jesus did this. Jesus created this new community. He's already hinting at the fact that God's program would not be completed, would not be done when Jesus finished his mission on earth. That was not the end. 
Jesus was creating a new people of God who would follow him and who would represent him once, he, once his earthly mission was complete. And these people would represent him how? In, in what way? They would represent him as a community of believers, as the church. Well, all of that started right here when he created this community of 12. The lesson for us as Christians is don't ever take for granted that you are part of a church. You were created into the, recreated into the church through Jesus. Just like he called these disciples, these 12, to form that first community, he called all of you that believe. And so followers are made by God. In, in contrast to the crowd that came to him, aiming to see these spectacular healings, these 12 came to him as well. Why? Only because of his call. He called those whom he desired, and they came to him. But look at what these followers do. He appointed them so that, always important words, so that they might be with him. He appointed them for that purpose, so that they might be with him. That's what their role was. It was so they might be with Jesus. For three years, these 12 got to be with the Savior. They got to be with Jesus. They would get to listen and learn as he walked. They would get to observe when he did miracles, and when he raised people from the dead, and when he, when he suffered. He called these 12 so that they might be with him. You know, he still calls followers so that they might be with him. And you might ask, like I asked the children, how can we be with Jesus today? Well, at the very ground uh, salvation level, to be with Jesus is what it means to be a Christian. We were separated with, from God, right? We were not with God. We could not be with God because of our sin. But now... Through Christ and through him awakening us to repent of our sins and to put our faith in Jesus, we are now united with Jesus. We are with Jesus in his death and resurrection. And so we can be with Jesus positionally through faith. But followers can be with Jesus through his word. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is identified there as the word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word became flesh, it says later, and dwelt among us. It was with us. And now we can be with Jesus as we spend time in His Word. If you read anywhere in the Old Testament, Jesus is there as the, the promised one, as the mystery, in a sense, who is to be revealed. If you read anywhere in the New Testament, Jesus is there, obviously. And you can be with Jesus through his word. And so Jesus calls followers so that they might be with him. If you spend time in the Bible, if you spend time thinking about God's word and meditating on the gospel, you will enjoy sweet fellowship with Jesus. And that kind of fellowship will prepare you for anything that you face in this life. And it will prepare you for everything you will face in the coming life. It will prepare you as you wait for the appearing of, as Titus says, of our blessed hope. 
So Jesus appointed 12 so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Jesus is saying that these 12 would, would imitate his ministry and would continue would, to carry out his ministry. The same sort of ministry that Jesus had. Not completely the same, but same in some respects. They would proclaim the gospel and they would deal with, with spiritual issues and they would stand against evil. And then he identifies the 12. It says, we don't really, out of that list, we don't really find out a whole lot more here about these people other than their names and and a few nicknames and where some of them are from. This was a nondescript group. Now we learn more about just a couple of them later on, especially Peter, Simon Peter, but for most of them, we don't know a whole lot more other than their names. Yet these 12 became the foundation stones for the church that you and I are a part of, the, the, the true church, the greater church. But that's just the way Christ builds his church. With some exceptions here and there, the church continues to exist mostly through ordinary people, just like these disciples were. The only one who Mark, Mark says a little bit more about is, is Judas. Did you notice that? Judas is described as the one who betrayed him. Now, this gives us a little bit of a hint of what's going to lie in store for Jesus. He was going to suffer. But one of his own followers, one of the ones whom he desired, would betray him. Now, that sounds kind of weird. Why would he desire, if God is in Christ, in, in some senses, even in his earthly life, was omniscient? Why would he desire one who he knew would betray him? Well, we know that this was all part of God's sovereign purpose. Jesus knew that he would go to the cross and that in that, promise, in that process, one of his own would betray him. Even that had to happen in order to fulfill the scriptures. And so in that way, he even desired Judas to be one of the twelve. But this also shows us that his disciples were human. They would fail. They would not be perfect. Yet Jesus would accomplish the Father's purposes even though his followers would fail from time to time. And even through their failure. And so it was on the night that he was betrayed, as we just read about, that he launched the new covenant there in that upper room. But the lesson for us here is that true disciples are called by Jesus so that they might be with him. God, or Christ calls out his people from among the crowds to follow him and to be with him. Well, we're going to find out who are not true followers. Again, the second part. In verses 20 and 21, we find Jesus back at home. This is the passage that Pastor Wayne read for us. There's another big crowd there, and it says that when his family found out that he was there, that they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he's out of his mind. And then Mark leaves that story behind, before he'll come back to it down in verse 31 again. If you just skip verses 22 to 30, this would read like one story. But he inserts this other episode in between. One commentator notices that Mark does this a lot. And he says that there's a purpose to it. He calls it Mark's sandwich technique. The middle story is usually the key to explain the parts on each end. 
And so let's look at that middle story before we look at the other one. The, we'll look at the, the meat or the, the peanut butter part of the sandwich. And then we'll relate it to the two pieces of bread. So in verses 22 to 30, the scribes show up again. Now we haven't seen these guys since the beginning of chapter 3. When we last left them back in, in uh, verse 6 of chapter 3, it said that they were trying to figure out how to destroy Jesus. In chapter 2, they kept asking Jesus questions, trying to, trying to trap him. But at this point now, they're done with the questions. So much for that, that tact. Now they confront him head on. So just to recap, the crowds came to him because they heard what Jesus was doing. The disciples came to him because Jesus called them to follow. And now the scribes came to Jesus. Verse 22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. Look at that and you go, what? Here's who they think Jesus is. Now they admit that he's got the power to cast out demons. They know that full well by now. But they say that his power, the power that he uses to cast out these demons is coming from Beelzebul. Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Basically, they're saying that Satan is the source of Jesus' power. Now that is a problem. It's not a problem for Jesus. He easily exposes that their, that their logic is way off here. He says, okay, guys, think about it. How could Satan cast out Satan? And then he proves that with a couple of arguments. If there's an eternal, internal division within a kingdom, he says it, it can't stand. It just makes sense. But then in verse 27, Jesus tells a story to hammer home a point and to give a clue about why he came. Look at verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. If you want to rob a strong man's house, and the owner of the home is home, uh, the owner of the house is home, you got to somehow get him tied up. Only when he's bound can you take his stuff. Now, why would he tell that story? What has that to do with the accusation that he's possessed by the devil? Well, Jesus' point here, actually, is that he is the robber. And Satan is the strong man who is allowed to exert a certain amount of authority over his house, over this world. This is his domain. But Jesus came into his domain, into this world, to bind Satan. Jesus came to free all of us from the power of evil. Even though the devil is still around, he's still lurking, he's still prowling like a roaring lion, his power has been plundered. Listen to 1 John 3.8. The reason the Son of God appeared, the reason he appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so Jesus would bind Satan. And that's the connection between the parts of the sandwich. Jesus' family... If you read the first and the last part of that, was trying to seize Jesus. Verse 21. In verse 32, it says, Your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And that's not the, the seeker-sensitive model that's, at, that's talking about there. The seeking is grabbing him, wanting to grab him and get him out of there. They're looking for, for him in order to stop him, in order to bind him from what he's doing. See the connections? 
They think they're actually rescuing him, but Jesus says that he can't be stopped from doing his work. He must not be bound. Why? Because he has come to bind Satan. He has to stay unbound so that he can bind Satan. Do you see? That's how... That's the point that Mark is making here. Colossians 2.15 says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That's why he came. And then Jesus gives a grim verdict to the scribes. Truly I say to you, when he says that, you know he's serious. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. This is the so-called unforgivable sin or an unpardonable sin, a section that probably deserves a whole sermon. <laughs> but it's just gonna, I'm just going to say a couple of things about that. What's this all about? Well, it goes back to who they thought Jesus was. They thought that Jesus was doing all these things through the power of the prince of demons and was possessed by Beelzebul, who's, who's the leader of the evil spirits. And Jesus, who is empowered, we read, by the Holy Spirit, John says, he will, I will baptize with you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Then the Holy Spirit comes down on him on, at, at the baptism. You remember that? Well, Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit. He says that attributing his power thinking that that power that he has now comes from the devil amounts to blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So, that, so what is this sin that is so serious that it would make someone guilty of an eternal sin? Well, for these religious leaders, they had Jesus right in front of them. He was doing all these miracles. He was preaching with all this new authority. But even though the, the Savior is right there in front of their faces, they still reject him. And they don't just reject him, they call him, call him a messenger of Satan. If they thought that, with Jesus right there, then there was no hope for them. That's what this means. This is a warning for the religious who start seeing themselves as self-righteous and prideful about their religious accomplishments. It seems like that kind of attitude is even more dangerous than someone who's outwardly wicked. There's hope for those people if they humble themselves, and if they admit their need for Jesus. But these religious leaders, their hearts are getting so hard and callous that if they have Jesus right in front of them and they attribute his works to Satan, there's no more hope. People who have pride-filled and self-righteous attitudes are in danger of having calluses form around their hearts so that they can, can't have their hearts changed anymore. They're unable to do that to receive the good news of grace that comes through Jesus even when it's right in front of them. And so we've been going back and forth here answering our question about what makes a follower of Jesus. The great crowd that follow, followed him were, were not all true followers. True followers are the 12. Why? Because Jesus creates them and calls them so that they'd be with him, they would carry out his mission. It's interesting, by the way, that none of the 12 are part of the religious establishment. And then Jesus goes on to show that the religious our, the religious leaders themselves are far from following Jesus. In fact, they say he's from Satan to their own peril. Now we're going to find out again, part two of who are the followers of Jesus. And so Jesus ends the story that he started before. And he says something outrageous, especially in that culture where, where family was considered the, 
the greatest thing, the highest form of community. Back in verse 21, his family was looking to seize him. And then in verse 31, they're here. They're there. They found him. They're outside the crowded house. And someone tells Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But Jesus uses that setting and that comment there to teach people another lesson about what makes a true follower of Jesus. Look at verse 33. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mothers and brothers. Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, that sounds like Jesus is being kind of mean. Is he... Is he really doing that? Is he, is he disrespecting and disowning his, his earthly family? I don't think so. This is a shocking thing to say yes. But he's not disowning them. We know that Jesus cared about his family right up until he, he was on the cross. When he told, remember he told the one disciple to care for his mother? So we know he's not disowning or disrespecting his family. But Jesus is teaching a lesson here about the priority of the family of God, the spiritual family, over the physical family. There's a deeper relationship than flesh and blood, and that's a a spiritual relationship with our brothers and sisters who are together, united in Christ. And then Jesus tells us what makes someone a true follower of Christ. What is it that makes one closer to Christ than even his own mother and brothers? Verse 35. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. A true follower of Jesus is one who does the will of God. Someone who seeks to obey his or her heavenly father. So there you have it. There's our answer. Both in the negative and in the positive. Following is not dependent only on proximity. You can't just say, you have a relationship with Jesus. Me and Jesus are tight. It's just me and Jesus. Those words don't prove anything. The true marks of following, according to Mark 3, are number one, being with Jesus, and number two, the desire to do God's will, the desire to obey God. There's a good warning in here for us, isn't there? If the people that hung around Jesus... And even the people that were related to Jesus were possibly not true followers. Then what about all of us who have been around religion for a number of years and years? We all have to face that question about the degree to which we are following Jesus. It doesn't matter if you've grown up in Christian homes or if you've been baptized or if you've been confirmed or if you attend church regularly or even if you give regularly. So, is there a way in which we can measure this? Well, two good questions from this text to measure yourself against as you think about the degree to which you are a follower of Jesus is, number one, do you truly want to be with Jesus? Do you truly want to be with Jesus? Do you enjoy spending time in his word? Do you, do you allow God's word to, to teach you? Or do you constantly resist its authority? Maybe you just take those parts that are convenient and you kind of skip over the rest. Are you striving towards holiness? 
And related to that, do you do the will of God as it is outlined in his word? That would be the second measure. Do you do the will of God as it is outlined in his word? Same question applies. Are you striving towards holiness? Are you striving to be set apart? Are you being convicted by sin? Or are you dead to your sins? Has your conscience been seared? Are you increasingly walking in a manner worthy of his calling? Or do you listen to God just when it suits you again and ignore him the rest of the time? If someone, here's a good question, if someone you don't know were to look at your, the way you live, would they say that you are more influenced by the world or by the word? Are you influenced more by the world or by God's word? And so a true follower is someone who longs to be with Jesus. And a true follower is one who does the will of God. Are you a true follower of Jesus? Let's pray.